good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to the Stay at Home Festival podcast. Producer Trent here. Today's episode, we focus on crime and pop music with uh, one of the best-selling crime authors in the world, Mr Ian Rankin. And we've also got music from Pictish Trail, so a real Scottish episode today. Remember to drop a tip in the tip jar if you can. Cosmicshambles.com slash stay at home is where you can do that to support venues and performers who are struggling right now. And patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support us at the Cosmic Shambles Network. Here is the episode. That sounded really creepy. I didn't mean for it to be. I'm going to do that again. Here is today's episode. Okay. I've Hello. Welcome oh. to Shambles Stay at Home Festival, Shambles College. Uh, this is our crime and music module special. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, Masonic-based Edinburgh murders at the same time as also talking about the band Can. I imagine, because we've got Ian Rankin with us. Uh, how are you, Josie? I'm fine. Do you know, I can't complain, I won't complain. I'm, uh, uh, you know. I'll tell you what, because we were just just before we went on air, I was I was mentioning this last night. Everyone watching, uh, some of you who may have seen my stand up will know I'm quite obsessed with 24 Hours in A and E. I think it is a incredibly beautiful and humane uh, documentary. It is the the lives of the doctors and the nurses and the volunteers and the people, uh, and you see so much of why many people became doctors or nurses or any other. And and, and their last night's episode was uh there were there were two stories um one of them was uh a child i'm not even going to tell you but they were it was those moments when you find out an, an elderly lady lying very very ill in a hospital and the effect that she's had on people's lives and the love that she's given and it was on both and i won't tell you that there was another story as well in there I promise you, if you are looking at the moment, if you're thinking, do I want to watch that clip of Donald Trump talk about disinfectant again? Nice. I don't think it will make you happier. I genuinely, even though I don't necessarily think it will make you happy to watch 24 Hours in A&E, as you watch it afterwards, you will go, oh, the potential of human beings and the possibility oh. to love. So you watch it. Oh, man, it was great. And I want to show you my show and tell, which is, I don't know if you can see this picture. Can you see it? Yeah. <clears throat> so you see this this little character here. Yeah. This sort of horrific school bully seven-year-old boy. Yeah. My daughter this morning pointed at that <laughs> and said, Mummy. <laughs> and the worst part is I can see what she means. <laughs> I'm so annoyed. I was like, great. This is me, is it? Great. It doesn't right. look like you. It really doesn't it look like It looks so much like me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never told a violinist, violinist friend of mine uh, who Archie got, got on, on, my son got on very well with at a festival once uh, when he was about three. And I was doing, when we were doing book club, I had a book by Jodie Marsh. And he, looked, and he confused my violinist friend uh, for Jodie Marsh. And uh, I kept it a secret. I never told Amy. <gasps> Anyway, so um, this is my show and tell is this book. It's not really this book. It's this story. It's A Slender Thread by Diane Ackerman, who's a very interesting. She's a writer. Oh. who She's really a poet. And she's written a book about the uh, the senses. And she's written a book about the brain. And yeah. this is about helplines, really. The kind of the, the, like a Samaritan line in, in America oh, wow. uh, and her work. And what is really fascinating about it, I might have told this story before, Josie. I apologize if I have. But um, there's a story of Frank Drake. Frank Drake 
came up with the Drake equation. He's still alive. The Drake equation was working out uh, the possibility of life on other planets, what were kind of the requirements of life and all of these. And so he's also been involved in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And so he's been one of those people who has sat, uh, you know, radio telescopes just listening. Oh, is that? No. Is that a net? No, that's still not. And, you know, there's just incredible the patience. We've still not picked up a signal which suggests as yet uh, a signal from intelligent life. But what I loved reading this book was finding out that the other thing Frank Drake was <clears throat> belonged to a kind of um, the equivalent of a Samaritan's line, because when he wasn't listening out for extraterrestrial intelligence, he would go. And he would listen to people who were in despair, who needed someone to talk to. And he I love like that. listening, really. He loves, li he's a listener. He's definitely a listener, Frank. But I thought, what a beautiful thing, again, which is, he's not just going, right, I, I'm, I'm involved in the big issues, mm. finding out where extraterrestrial intelligence is. He's also thinking of those other people who already have intelligence, who are already curious creatures, and sometimes that is a very difficult thing to be. And uh, some sort of problem. So that, that's my show and tell, is I really would recommend a, a slender thread by Diane Ackman, and uh, I would also recommend reading more about Frank Drake. Yes. Great. So that's it. Yeah. And now, should we go straight to our 60th birthday special guest? Not yet, four days' time. Mm -hmm. I think I'm right in saying four days' time. Ladies and please welcome to his front room. It is Ian Rankin. Hello, Ian. Hi. How are you doing? How is everybody? You look 10 years younger. I can't believe oh, it. Yeah, What's I know. Uh, uh, you want to see the, the painting in the attic. Uh, it's... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It's um, it's weird because I was planning a big birthday. I was planning lots of stuff. I was going to go to a gig with mates. I was going to have a meal out with my wife and son. I was going to have a big party for friends. But you know what? I think I might just have a quiet night in. <laughs> watch a bit of telly. I, it was my birthday, not a birthday, uh, last week. And my birthday party was me and my partner and my two-year-old all wearing party hats, eating a normal dinner. <laughs> But we saw what the flat looked like ne oh, the next day. Jigsaw pieces <laughs> everywhere. Was Daddy, mummy pig. Well, yeah. you were just saying, Ian, you've just finished your, your next novel. So you just finished. And is that because I know that you, you do a kind, kind of, of you do a first draft, which, mm. which comes out of incredible. Because I remember when we were at the Lawn uh, Weekend uh, Festival, when you were being interviewed there. And uh, Mark Billingham asked about the book, and then you just pulled up a carrier bag, and there <laughs> inside that carrier bag was the stack of A4, and you talked about your speed of writing, and Mark's face dropped and his skin went pale because. So the first draft, you kind of rattle through. Is that right? It's, it's kind of quite a right. I've got the story. Is that how it works? Yeah, usually that's how it works. Uh, there was a slight complication this time because I started the book early. I started it in November. And then Christmas and New Year got in the way. So I actually put it aside for about six weeks and then picked it up again. But in terms of the number of days it took to write the first draft, it was still around 30 days. Um, so about 10 pages a day, 3,000 words a day, 30 days. And that's the first draft done. Um, but it's kind of rough. Kind of and rough. The, and the, the thing then is just to keep polishing it and polishing it and polishing it. So what's gone off to the editor and the agent yesterday uh, is, I would say, between the third and fourth draft. The second draft I showed to my wife, my agent, and my editor, they all came back with feedback, things I could change to make it a better book. I did a third draft, then I read through that and just made tiny little changes. So that's pretty much a fourth draft. And I'm hoping, I mean, touch wood, I'm hoping that's it. I'm hoping next time I see it will be October if the, you know, if the bookshops have opened and, and there's things for me to do to sell, help sell books. I think the plan is to 
publish it in October. And is it right you do, you don't get in the first draft you don't get bogged down going hang with, on a minute I'll just have to check this is accurate or anything like that you you get the story and then the the second draft is where you go oh I better just check whether that is yeah. actually accurate yeah um, I mean I'll, let me give you an example yeah an example I mean, of that I mean the, this book is set up in the north coast of Scotland way up in the north coast um, where my detective inspector Rebus, uh, his daughter lives. She's in her forties. She's got a partner, got a kid. Her partner's gone missing, and so her dad goes herring up there to be the knight in shining armor, um, only to find that he needs as much help as she does. Uh, I wrote the first draft without actually going up there. I mean, I'd been to Tongue and Durness and places like that up in the North Coast before, but I wrote the book, and it was set basically in Tongue, which is a real village. Then. Uh, I jumped in the car and drove up there to do the research and found that tongue was not at all suitable for my needs. Oh, no. Uh, it, it was a much bigger conurbation than I'd imagined. It had its own police station, it had schools, it had hotels and things. Whereas I'd imagined this place that was pretty isolated and, you know, had one pub, no garage, et cetera, et cetera. So I then uh, spent a few days exploring that, that coast and decided I would have to invent a village. So I've invented the village called Naver, N-A-V-E-R, which doesn't exist. And it's about eight miles east of uh, Tongue. So that was that was a change between the first draft of the book and the second draft of the book. Suddenly there was a whole new place where this stuff was all happening. <laughs> Poor Tongue, because they were thinking, brilliant, we're on the Ian Rankin tourist map. We'll do, do, do as what? well as the Oxford Bar. We'll have people <laughs> racing in for drinks. But they could have been more amenable. They you could know, have closed down the schools. They could have closed <laughs> down the garage. And then it would have been fine. It's selfishness on the part of the people of town. It is. It is. And, and I was so lucky because, so the, lucky book because actually, the book is actually set summer 2019. Huh. So I didn't have to take uh, the virus into account at all. Because if I was writing, if the book was set now, my poor old detective who has COPD would be stuck in his flat, not allowed to go out, not allowed to do anything. He'd be solving the crime from his living room. How do you um, think about that for the future, though? Do you feel like that's something you're going to have to reckon with? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's one of the things that keeps the series fresh, I think, and keeps the character fresh is that he changes. And now he's in his mid to late 60s and he's got health issues. I gave him the COPD. He doesn't, he's never going to recover from that. So actually, spoiler alert, the very first scene of the new book is it looks like his friend Siobhan Clark has come to empty his flat and you think, oh, Christ, what's happened to him? He's moved. He's moved to a ground floor flat because he can't manage the tenement stairs at Edinburgh anymore. Um, so he's been in this flat since 1987 when the first book was published. And now for, for medical reasons, I've got to move him. And I've moved him 50 feet to a ground floor flat in exactly the same block. Because <laughs> I'm lazy. <laughs> the, um, just before we have the next question, I've I realised what we forgot to do at the top of the show, which is just mentioned the fact we have a tip jar uh, here and we... Uh, and uh, we've got loads of other shows coming up. On Monday, we've got Mark Gatiss. Uh, tonight, we've got Josie's Quarantine Comedy Club. And... Me. Lots of fun. Half past eight. It's going to be a great show tonight. 
then we've got the kids science show tomorrow morning and uh, we've got the science Q&A on Sunday where you can send us the questions for it's going to be uh, Helen Chersky, Brian Cox and Matthew Cobb. Matthew Cobb's new book uh, about the brain is fantastic and just had an incredible review actually from Henry Marsh uh, in the New Statesman. So anyway, the tip jar is uh, a resource that we're building up for. Uh, we, in fact, before we went on air, Ian and I were just talking about the fact that with you know, Edinburgh, which has a wonderful comedy scene in terms of the, the stand and obviously in August as well, uh, which is it becomes quite remarkable um those performers there is no money coming in so we're making a resource for those performers who are going to kind of hit the wall a little bit and uh also we're a resource to help some of the art centers which are now already um struggling quite a lot so anyway that uh we meant to do that at the top of the show but we forgot got distracted anyway um welcome back Ian. welcome back uh what interests me was because I, I know crime writers get on very well generally i always enjoy hearing the different stories of you know in terms of literary gatherings uh it doesn't seem to have the certain kind of uh almost palpable animosity and distance that you can see sometimes in literary festivals where people are all in separate parts of the green room with their pr and there's a kind of oh they got the orange prize and didn't deserve it whereas you know crime writers it seems quite a, a gregarious uh scenario is that partly you know because you're committing so many terrible murders, do you think that helps with the? Because it fits in with that lovely John Waters idea. You know, John Waters when he used to go and lecture in prisons, and he would say, "My trick was to, to commit all of my crimes on celluloid." <laughs> yeah, I think there's something in that. I mean, I think it is cathartic. It's therapeutic. therapeutic. It's therapeutic when you um, when you're committing murder on a daily basis, um, occasionally bumping off people you don't like, just just thinly disguising them. Um, so there's definitely something in that. Uh, I didn't also, think, I, I think that. What a joy! I know, isn't it great? Um, but it's it, there's more more than that. I think it's more than that. I think it's that crime fiction for a long time was not taken seriously um, as as a, as a form of writing. It was looked down on as being just commercial, throwaway, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so there weren't the big literary festivals that invited crime writers and there weren't the prizes where you would find crime writers on the shortlist. So we basically invented our own and we, we helped each other out as much as possible. We got together. We've got lots of things in common because we all like murdering people. Um, and we all hit the bar. You know, whenever you go to a literary festival, if you want the crime writers, go to the bar. There we are, propping it up next to the comedians, um, which is why comedians and crime writers get on so well. I think. <laughs> it's just hard liquor. It's that thing about hard liquor. Uh, so I think there's that. I think, you know, and crime fiction is now taken more seriously. I think younger writers who once upon a time would have wanted to be thought of as literary novelists, tackling big themes, big subjects, um, are now drawn to the crime novel, uh, partly because they think maybe I can make a living in a way that I can't if I'm a poet uh, or a literary novelist selling a few hundred copies, but also in part because they see no differentiation between crime fiction and literary fiction. We're... You know, the best crime fiction is taken on the same big moral questions as the, as great literature. Um, and so we're getting a better quality of writer coming along all the time who wants to turn to the crime novel and do something with it, which is annoying. Uh, <laughs> it's been in the game as long as I have. Terribly <laughs> annoying to have these young, these young, fit people coming along uh, with great ideas full of vim and vigour when you're at the fag end of your career. <laughs> receding but, into the distance well also it's worrying because you've said that committing murders on uh, on the page is cathartic with everyone isolation i oh, imagine man. there have never been more people hopefully committing murders on a page uh 
Because well, is... I mean, this, it's, I, there's going to be so many of these. You know, next year there's going to be a slew of these novels getting submitted to publishing houses and agents. Because I mean, I, yeah, I was cycling along Princess Street, the main street in Edinburgh, last week. The Balmoral Hotel, this five-star hotel, huge posh hotel, boarded up. Mm. And although it's boarded up, a car arrived and a guy came out with a kind of package and rang the doorbell and the big wooden door and it was eventually opened. And somebody took the package from him. I thought, wow, there's a kind of night watchman type person, a, a, a kind of, you know, housekeeper in that huge hotel, empty hotel. What else is going on behind all these boarded up windows of these shops and these bars and these restaurants? Anything could be happening. And we wouldn't know about it until the, until the lockdown ends. So there's a, there's a starting point for crime fiction. The lockdown is phenomenal. Mm. Yeah, you've given it away. It. <laughs> you know, you've well, I'm not going to use it. I mean, I'm not going to. It's too obvious. I mean, who's going to want to read about the bloody lockdown when we all come out of it? This is how I feel. It feels so strange, doesn't it? It feels like, well, I can't imagine over ever wanting to be like, hmm, let me read about somebody's long, tortured thoughts <laughs> while they're trapped. <laughs> like, I'll throw the book across the room. I know. I, and all I, this material you guys won't be able to use on stage. Mm. You got on the stage and go, hey, what about that lockdown then? People believe in the comedy comedy store in droves. Now, I because I, I, I keep hearing people saying, "Imagine how much stand up. Imagine how much fiction. Imagine." And I, I'm exactly the same as you. I'm totally the opposite. I, I think that's. I, I think people won't what, even want to write about it. You know, if you're going to write about isolation and you're going to write about you, you know, in a, a kind of inner world, you were probably going to do that anyway. You probably already have, if you are an artist in some way. If, if you're probably already. D dealing with the inner monologue stuff it's not like oh yeah. do you know what i've never had so much time to just stay with my thoughts and turn them into strange things that's what we do anyway we yeah. don't necessarily need isolation I, was... I mean the other thing about this lockdown is everybody said oh great i can finally great, read I can war finally read war and peace or the brothers karamatsov or something um and i'm finding reading really difficult i can write but reading I, my attention span is gone so i used to pick up a book read the whole book pick up another book now i'm flitting between four or five books you know, after a chapter, I lose interest to go to another book. I read a chapter of that. I go to another book. Um, and it's the comfort reads is what I've ended up with. So I am rereading for the umpteenth time the 12 volumes of Anthony Paul's A Dance to the Music of Time, which is the snobbiest novel you'll ever read in your life. Um, but it's beautifully done. It's elegant. He's it, got this amazing cast of characters who come and go. It takes one character from school days through to old age. Um, and I've gone back to that. Instead of trying to read Brothers Karamazov or Moby Dick or Gravity's Rainbow, I'm actually going to the books I know and small books, skinny books that I can read in a day. Yeah, I think that's. I, I think I'm lucky. Because I've got another project, so I'm also not reading novels. I'm not reading. I, I'm flitting in and out of whoever I'm interviewing for the book that day, and I think I can do that. But you're right. I, th I think purpose. That whole thing. Per it's it's interesting. I'm interested to hear that from you because I would have imagined you, Ian, were not someone who would necessarily go. Oh, I can still read books. This is still. But to have that, even you also finding that as a problem. You, you, Josie, how are you finding it? Oh, I'm, I mean, I'm finding, I mean, I'm finding it far too tricky. It's exactly the same. My attention span's gone. But I think it's because a, you need your sort of bedrock. You need to feel like you understand the world and have some handle on what's going on and what your place in it is. And I think when that's so suspended and you're sort of stuck in a little holding pattern, it's really hard to go, OK, well, um, everything's... I know who, what's going on with me and I can enjoy improving my mind or enjoying the world of literary fiction or I, I don't know. It just everything feels so up in the air. It's really hard to then decide on top of that to 
get on with stuff because it you know like you say like you can't write about now so reading about things uh, I, I yeah i find it tricky see i, I, I just i just tried this i would recommend it i don't know if anyone else has read it i just i just really it's really good i just read james joyce's ulysses and, and it's yeah. really it's just i just straight through it it's you're, you're, you're sucked in immediately it's uh oh look there's the page that i turned the last time i started yeah i got to page 19 last time i tried that that was a few years back but it's still there it's always near homeopathically going into me homeopathically. i blame the fact that i bought as a student as a student a really nice hardback copy secondhand of Ulysses because obviously I wanted to pose and then you can't lug that brick around you can't do anything with it you can't even properly sit with it so that's why I've never got beyond page 150 it's nothing to do with me <laughs> yeah yeah that's the big one that's the big one I, I actually um, when I was a postgraduate student at Edinburgh University I taught Ulysses um, to second year, you had to read it in second year. So these nineteen-year-olds were trying to come to terms with Ulysses. Huh. And I think you had three days to read it. You know, I mean, because it was like that was your class on Wednesday, sure. and by Friday you were onto something else. Um, and uh, it was tough. It was tough. I mean, I, you know, having read it a couple of times, I was just starting to get to grips with some of it. By no means all of it. And then a couple of years ago at the Edinburgh Book Festival, there was a master class on Finnegan's Wake, and it was just one literary critic who was going to take you through it. So I sat for an hour and a half. And at the end, he just gave you a kind of cheat sheet. I thought, if you'd given me this at the beginning, I could have left and yeah. gone and had, a, you know, had an ice cream or something. That's <laughs> all I want. All I wanted was the Finnegan's Wake cheat sheet. That means I never have to read the book. Well, that is because I see certain bits and pieces of art, which because of the way they've been spoken about, the, the level of responsibility, the daunting level. Of, and also James Joyce was kind of quite obsessed, wasn't he, about the idea was, do you know what? I want to write a book which people then have to spend their whole life yeah. reading over and over again, which I think is frankly rude and unmannerly. I think that idea of going, I don't want anyone else reading anything apart from my great big block of a book. And if they can get through that, then I'm going to give them Finnegan's weight, let them find meaning there. I think that is you know, it's a wonderful act of arrogance, isn't it? It is. I mean, in fact, I think it was specifically literary critics and academics who wanted to be reading it uh, for the uh, for their whole life, something they could keep digging into. But, you know, I mean, it was a time when I loved doing that. I mean, Gravity's Rainbow Pension, when I was a student and I read it, I thought I'm going to spend my whole life loving this book and getting more out of it and digging into it deeper. And then you start going, yeah, maybe I'll just read some Ruth Rendell instead or an Agatha mm -hmm. Christie or something. Um, and I've never gone back to it. I keep saying I'm going to go back to it um, and do it properly this time. Properly. Properly. Now that I'm no longer 20 years old and, and, and gauche. And I'll understand that. I mean, I'm actually getting a lot more out of Dance the Music of Time. I mean, I probably read that sequence every 10, 15 years. And when I read it, I get a little bit more out of it because I know a little bit more about the world than I did when I was younger. Um, and so as I'm going through the book, I'm actually sympathising with characters who, when I was young, I thought were idiots or, or daft and boring and old. And I'm thinking, no, actually, they're the people I, I uh, can engage with now. I can empathise with them a lot more than I can empathise with these young posh twats, if we're allowed to say that at 10 o'clock in the morning. You are now. Um, yeah, I know, I know. Um, you know, they got they, they actually got the, the F word into the Times this morning, which I was pretty impressed with. Um, no asterisks involved. They just used a kind of onomatopoeic uh, because it was a South African film they were reviewing. And it was the F word as spoken in this South African film. And so there was a slightly different spelling to it. And they got away with it. Very, a very Father Ted moment, I thought. 
But it is such a strange that that still one of the in, in terms of the strange childishness of of of, of being British, the mm. fact that for years and years, so you you read that word, it is not removed that word. So by by placing the the asterisk, you don't you're not stuck in a conundrum. That's yeah. what you hear in your head. So it does nothing to 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 uh, to, to blank out some of that. Oh, and but that think of the goes, children, Robin. Think of the children. I am. I can hear him swearing downstairs at the moment. I, I thought the children when, when, yeah, when my son was three years old watching Mark Steele do his sweary lecture about Karl Marx, he took out very little, few ideas about the idea of alienation and the worker, but he took out a whole new vocabulary for, you know, in some ways when he did hit his hand. Uh, uh, Johnny, Johnny, oh, sh the baby, oh, oh. I think it's, um, I'll tell you who you're talking about short books. Which uh, um, the person that I'd not read uh, until last year, uh, Muriel Spark. Yeah, they are, and they most of her books are about one hundred and twenty pages long as well. Oh, and they are people. That's a gift. Yeah, and but they are they are tardises, Josie. They're tardises. They're tardises. Mm. They're much bigger on the inside than they are on the outside. Um, I mean, Miss Jean Brody is one hundred and twenty-five pages. But there's so much in it. I mean, that's a book I've read a half a dozen times. And again, every time I go back to it, I get something new from it. Um, but she was a poet. I mean, Muriel Spark thought of herself as a poet. And if you go to her grave in Italy, it just says on the gravestone, Poeta. It doesn't say novelist or anything. It says Poeta. That was how she thought of herself. So she has that poet's, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? That, you know, not using too many words, which I'm doing now to try and get to the word I'm thinking of. Uh, you know, she's got that. And... Um, uh, and I love that about her, but her books resonate. They really do. Um, she's got the, the best Watergate novel ever, The Abyss of Crew, which was filmed um, uh, quite a long time ago. It's just brilliant. It basically takes the Watergate conspiracy but moves it into a nunnery. <laughs> um, but it keeps all the elements are there, um, the spying and everything, the bugging. There's even a kind of figure who's jetting around the world, uh, doing all kinds of things. Uh, it's just, she's, she, I think she was amazing. Um, and I did my PhD on her uh, in Edinburgh, um, and I just loved the fact that she wrote these lovely short books because, it, you know, I could spend my days reading them in a way that, and, and not having to do Ulysses, not having to do it. And in fact, her longest book, ironically, The Mandelbaum Gate, is her worst book, I think. She gets bogged down, and it's, it's just, it's over 300 pages long, and it just gets bogged down in detail and, and plot that doesn't quite go anywhere. Um, what, do you know much about her process in writing that one and why she decided to write a longer book and what was going on? Well, she was taking on the um, Eichmann trial in Israel. Eichmann, the, the Nazi, had been arrested in South America and whisked away to Israel and was on trial. And she'd actually been visiting Israel um, on holiday and she'd got, I think she'd gone along to watch the trial or something one day and decided to write a book that would contain this. Um, and it's just a slightly, it's a, it's a confused book. It meanders in a way that most of her books don't meander. Um, I think she wrote very quickly. There was an exhibition in Edinburgh for her centenary a couple of years ago. And here were these notebooks. She wrote in these, used to be a bookshop in Edinburgh called James Thins, and it was near the university, and it's where all the university students used to go. When she was a school kid in Edinburgh, she got all her jotters, her school-lined jotters, uh, from this James Thins booksellers. And she continued to buy them and she wrote all her books huh. in these school jotters and they stopped making them. And she got in touch and said, well, I, I, if you stop making these jotters, I can't write any more books. 
So she sent a sample of one of them, I think a little bit of the lined paper, to Finns, and they got them made specially for her mm. and sent her something like 40 or 50 of them, enough to do her for the rest of her life because by then she was in her, I don't know, 70s or something. Um, but all her life she continued to write longhand in these beautiful school jotters, and they had some of them on display. They had the one that Miss Jean Brodie um, was written in, and it's just a, extraordinary. In a way, it's a process that we can't see these days because, you know, we all write on computers. We, we tend not to write longhand anymore or even with typewriters. So your mistakes are covered up immediately. So the PhD students of the future are going to have nothing to look at because all they've got is this pristine text, which was what was sent to the publisher. And I'm still old school. I still print it out. I print it out and I, I correct it on the paper. I write in the margins. My wife reads it as an A4 manuscript. She writes in the margins things that I've got wrong. Then I go back and read that and correct it all. Um, and and some, but I'm very old school, you know. I mean, these days there's there's no there's there's no Ulysses manuscript for people to look at. But then, do you think it will be the case that publishers will release early drafts after people die and things like that? The, the director's cut. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, but who knows? People can who hack knows? into those notes programs that have all the notes as an addition and hack them and yeah. release them. And see how much I remember. Well, as, as, as Robin knows, I mean, we a year ago we downsized and we moved to this flat and from a big house in Edinburgh. And I was very lucky that the National Library of Scotland said they would take my archive. Mm -hmm. So they've got all the early drafts of the books. Um, and you know, some, the first draft, of course, is very different from the final draft. Even this latest book, the first draft is very different from the final version. And because I printed it out as I went, it exists. And that will also go into the archive so that people will get an idea of what changes I had to make between the book being imagined and the book actually being publishable. Well, we're going to we've got we've been sent some uh, questions on the live feed. So we're going to give you those questions in a moment. But first of all, uh, Josie, uh, oh. who have we got? Who is our musical guest today? Guest today. Um. A musical desk, uh, desk, a musical desk, <laughs> Johnny Lynch. Oh, we've okay. turned into the bed sitting room, the wonderful um, uh, play by uh, Spike Milligan, which if you've never seen, there's a movie of it with Ralph Ritson where it turns into, well, that's what he turns into. He turns into a bed sitting room. It's uh, various different people turn into uh, inanimate objects. It's a delight. Well, and that's what I'm hoping. That's what I'm hoping that he'll be doing for us today. And if he just plays one of his beautiful songs, he's let us all down. <laughs> it's Johnny Lynch, the Pictish Trail. Uh, actually, Pictish Trail, not the Pictish Trail. Pictish Trail. So get that right. Um, he's on the Isle of Egg at the moment. Uh, I think he's sort of having his own splendid isolation there. And um, I think he's has he got a show and tell for us today, or is it just a song? I think he's just doing a song today. Oh, we'll find out. We're going to find out right now. Hello. Hi. It's uh, Pictish Trail here. I'm uh, speaking to you from the Isle of Egg. You look great. Uh, I'm just looking at the, the picture of myself on my camera phone. I'm filming it reverse so I can see myself. And I, I look great. I look great. I'm sure you do too. It's lovely to be here in my home. Uh, I'm going to sing you some songs. This is uh, a song that isn't actually my song. I didn't check if that was all right to sing someone else's song, but I hope, hopefully, you like this song.
Can you hear that? Talking about us, telling lies. Is that a surprise? Can you see that right through them? They have a shield, nothing to be revealed. It doesn't matter what they say. No one listens anyway. We can use in our defense Silence, we'll just look at them Look right through them That's when they disappear That's when we lose the fear It doesn't matter what they say In the jealous games people play Our lips are sealed It doesn't matter what they say no one's listening anyway Our lips are sealed Hush my darling Don't you cry Guardian angels Forget their lies Can you hear them? They're talking about us, telling lies. Is that a surprise? Can you see them right through them? They have a shield, nothing must be revealed. It doesn't matter what they say. In the jealous games people play. No one uses that filter enough, the Bug Eyes one. I'm really quite heavily into the Bug Eyes filter. I hope that was all right to use that. I've been picked his trail. I'll see you around sometime. Hello. 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 That, Welcome that back. Picked his trail. Uh, Johnny's on the Isle of Egg at the moment and who has a, he has a new album out. In fact, you were saying, Ian, it was one of your last purchases before the uh, lockdown. Yeah, um, um, uh, it's called Thumb World. Thumb World, thumb world. and it's a, it's a concept album about a thumb and <laughs> a world of thumbs. Um, so it's just as bad as you would expect from Johnny. Uh, it's very good. It's very good. I didn't get it on vinyl. A vinyl was far too expensive. Note to Johnny. I bought it on CD. <laughs> uh, the vinyl was about twenty six quid I think, for a single album. I thought That's it had to be. It must be. If it had been a double, I might have bought it. But it was only a single album. You did get a, a sheet of stickers. Uh, for your 26 quid each one of those stickers is worth four pounds <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna definitely get that because i have uh strange thumbs so i don't know if you can see my thumb Ooh. 
that I have thumbs. Quite, uh, and uh, so I've always been fascinated. I, I didn't know I had short thumbs until when I was younger. I had a slight kind of um, lazy R, which with the name Robin is not useful. It wasn't. It was one of those things, you know, when you're bullied at school uh, about something, then you become very aware of it. So if you know what's your name, Robin, Robin, yeah, it's like that. And then one day it just went; it was fine. And literally the moment that that came, someone then pointed and went, "God, you got weird thumbs!" Immediately there was something to replace my chrysalid nature uh, in the schoolyard. <laughs> now we've got. Then it makes you think it wasn't about the art. It wasn't about the thumbs. It was about human cruelty. Yeah. <laughs> Thank heavens I was on the outside. It's helping me get through this isolation. Um, <laughs> We've had yeah, we've had a few questions. Uh, first one, this is from Christy, who wanted to know. Uh, I think it's Christy. It might be Kirsty, but I'm not sure. Uh, um, do you have a routine in the Nick Cave style? Because Nick Cave, I know he doesn't do it anymore, <clears throat> but he used to basically put on his suit and he would go into his office, wouldn't he? And he would write, I think, till yeah. five o'clock. Um, have you have you followed that kind of uh, routine? Not the suit necessarily. necessarily. I mean, I, know, I mean, I know a lot of writers obsess over doing a nine to five, or they obsess over how many words they write in a day. I, I don't do a word count. I don't do a page count. I write as much as I feel like writing on any particular day. And sometimes if it's not going well, I just walk away and go back later. If, the beauty of being a full-time writer is that I might start at 9 a.m. or sometimes I might start at 8 p.m. You know, I mean, the working day might not start until evening. And suddenly that's when I feel, aha, I know where I'm, what I'm going to do with this scene now. I'll just go and write it. Um, and again, I'm very lucky because I'm a successful writer, which means I've got my own separate little office and I can go and tuck myself away there, away from the world. Um, the one thing about this this virus is I was supposed to be, we've got a house way up in the north of Scotland and I was supposed to go there to write the book and edit the book. And although some of the book was written there, I couldn't go there to do the edits because of the virus. So I was lucky that I had my own little separate office that I could go to to do that. Um, I've got routines. I mean, routines as in things like there's got to be music playing while I write, but it has to be instrumental music. Um, so there's a kind of, I've got a lucky five or seven albums that I'll sit and listen to on CD. I can't be getting up every 20 minutes to turn the vinyl over. Um, so it's, you know, it's stuff like Brian Eno, Boards of Canada, um, uh, Aphex Twin, um, Tangerine Dream, sometimes a little bit of jazz or classical. But at certain albums, Kid A by Radiohead, and maybe a little bit of the Cocteau Twins, which has words, but I can't make them out, so that doesn't bother me at all. Um, and those are always playing in the background while I'm working and it just creates a little bubble. So I'm, I'm, I'm living in a little bubble where it's only me and my book and the inside of my head and the outside world has ceased to exist. Cause the things like, the, the you know, pub and having that moment at the end of writing, and just go now there is some sense of social life i mean i think you're one thing as you said having a space <coughs> where you can actually hide that whole room of one's own mm. thing seems to be very important you know for a lot of people who are trying to be writers and want to be writers finding a time of utter because i think that's what a lot of people don't necessarily if it's not the thing they want to do they imagine you can just sit down go oh it's all right i've got an hour spare now i can write mm, but very yeah. often there's a run-up of about three hours isn't there there's uh, finding those finding that way of suddenly going all oh, right there we go i've got the the, the the words are coming now that's what's been killer about lockdown for lockdown. me is for me is that there's no space in this little flat that i have as mine and there's no space in this little flat where i can't hear everyone mm. and there's no length of time longer than about three hours that i have so it's like <laughs> it never seems to be possible sorry yeah no i mean i, I think that I, I think that is really frustrating if you can find that space but you know when i was when i was unsuccessful 
you know, things like a cubby hole off the kitchen was my writing space. And I shared it with a washing machine and a pulley. Um, and the people were walking past all the time. My wife was walking past all the time. Um, and you just dealt with it. I mean, if you were a writer, you just gritted your teeth and got on with it. Um, other writers need, need people around them. So they go and write in cafes. They stick their headphones on and they open up their, their, their computer and they just sit and work in a cafe surrounded by people and no ambient noise. Um, I, 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 do, I need a, a level of peace and quiet if I can get it. But, you know, we've got two kids. When the kids were growing up, that wasn't always possible. Um, but now that I can afford the peace and quiet, I do like it. And um, once I get into the book, it's, it's distractions aren't quite as big an issue. But at the start of the book, uh, it's few, the fewer distractions, the better. Um, and also, as I get older, this is really frustrating. As I get older, I find writing is getting harder. I thought it would get easier, you know, like changing spark plugs in a car. Once you've done it a few dozen times, it gets pretty easy. Um, but no, it gets bloody harder, which is really annoying. What do but you mean by that? Go on, Josie. What do you mean by that? In, in what way? Um, the, the ideas are harder to come by. Um, when I was young and unsuccessful, nobody wanted to interview me. There weren't any festivals asking me to do things. There weren't any newspapers asking for reviews or anything like that. So I had the whole world to myself, just me and my writing. And now there's a lot of stuff gets in the way. A lot of touring gets in the way, promotional things, all of that. Um, you know, I had this naive notion when I was young that you wrote the book and the publisher sold the book. But it seems to me more and more that the writer is actually selling the book as well. You know, we've, we've, got, we've got to be on social media, we've got to be doing this, we've got to be doing that, we've got to be going to bookshops, we've got to be going to festivals. Um, and it takes a big chunk of your life. Uh, and, you know, I mean, the kind of idea of the writer in the smoking jacket lying on the shade long, dictating the book to an amanuensis, um, that'd be great. Like Barbara Cartland. I would love to be Barbara Cartland, wouldn't you? <laughs> Just sounds like the best fun. Just reaching over for a chocolate every now and again. Uh, oh. Well, your well, your secretary writes down your latest bon mot. Oh, I couldn't eat that much royal jelly. I just <laughs> got to a lot of royal jelly. The um, LJ. Was that, was that not what she was putting on her face? I think uh, she's put it everywhere. It's all over the shop that royal jelly. And and, <laughs> and any of us who who've read that Roald Dahl story or seen Timothy West in the in the uh, that that wonderful tales the unexpected where he keeps eating various things. Uh, I think it is royal jelly. In fact, yeah. that may well be the name of the story. Anyway, it has a terrible twist at the end. Now, I'll tell you, Timothy West turns into a bee, but he's fine when he gets back on the narrow boats with Prunella Scale. So it's all right. Um, LJ wanted to know: uh, Have you ever had a storyline, or how many have you had where you just haven't been able to ultimately crack the story so you've got something in your drawer and you go i still can't quite crack that that narrative I, I, you, know, I, you know i've not got many but i've got a few i mean sometimes if it's not working as a novel you can write it up as a short story or something um a sketch anything just to get it down on paper so it's left your head and gone elsewhere uh there's one novel again the manuscript is in the national library and uh, it never quite worked there's quite a lot of um notes and things and it was called sabbath child and it was basically a a kid who's apparently killed his father um but because the kid is under the age of criminal responsibility um by a few weeks cannot be prosecuted for the murder um and the question is whether the mum put him up to it or not uh and never quite got into it never quite got it to work my agent was very excited about it it was going to be my breakout book this is a long time ago and I never quite got it to work, so it's still sitting there. And I've got TV projects. That I've got I, when I was going through everything. When I was going through all the stuff um, before we moved house, I found hundreds of pages of script and notes and characterization for a TV drama 
uh, and I'm going to even forget what it was called. It was a cop drama. It wasn't Rebus. And I'd written it up and had been letters to various production companies. And I said to my wife, have you got any memory of that? Because I've literally, literally no memory of this thing <laughs> that I wrote 20 years ago. Lock, I think it was called. Was it Lock? I can't remember. Anyway, I've got literally no memory of this thing I wrote 20 years ago. And she went, nope, nope, <laughs> that's gone. <laughs> just had a whole spare TV show. Just I know, it's hilarious. But, you know, sometimes you write something down, and because you've written it down, that's it. You don't need to do anything with it. Um, and one of the problems possibly with Sabbath Child is that I'd worked it out so neatly that I didn't feel the need to write it because I knew it was going to happen. And when I start writing my books, I usually don't know who done it or what's going to happen once you get past about page 10. That's it. So is there a, is there a worried if you go, hang on a minute, I'm at page 213. I still don't know who's done it. Uh, in fact, I forgot to put a murder in. You know, is, is there a point ever where you think, hang on, this, you've created these characters and you start to find pointing the finger becomes more difficult than you'd imagined. There, there was one book, I think it was The Hanging Garden, where I finished the first draft, finished the first still draft and still didn't know who the killer was. <laughs> and um, I went back and read through the first draft and went, okay, I think it was you. Uh, and so the second draft, I, I put that in. Um, the, the book usually tells me, but I mean, you know, when I start the book, I've got, uh, something has happened. Okay, so let's take the new book. Somebody's gone missing. Uh, Rebus's daughter's partner's gone missing. Um, okay, so that's the motor that gets the story going. Then you introduce um, characters and scenes and you start to go, oh, hang on a minute, maybe you had something to do with it. Maybe you're involved in some way. Um, what are you hiding from me? What are you not telling me? And that takes you to the next bit, that takes you to the next bit. And eventually the story goes, you know, you know what, it was you, it was this person here for this reason. And so uh, maybe I know this subconsciously, I just don't know it consciously when I start the book. Or maybe the book has a life of its own that I'm only burrowing into by degrees. And the book knows where it's, as long as the book knows where it's going, I will hang on to it. I'll hang on to its coattails until I get to the end. Um, and more writers, more crime writers than you might imagine work like that. I've interviewed lots of them and we meet for drinks and things. And although this all looks plotted and looks intricately plotted, a lot of us make it up as we go along. And it's only by about the third draft that it starts to look intricately plotted. And you go, oh, wasn't I clever? Wasn't I clever? It's so interesting that it goes that way round. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like it's like going up on a stage with very little material and riffing. Which what is like, riffing, you know? You're making connections as you go along and your brain... So that's so interesting because I think there's two types of stand-ups, really. There are stand-ups who write in advance a script and then there are stand-ups who write on stage and I write on stage partly because that gives my brain the space that it needs to get that proper focus to make good connections and to really sort of play and so it must be a similar thing where it's like in the act of writing it that's where your brain is able to make the connections, not yeah. in the act of sitting, plotting a big puzzle. But it can all go terribly wrong. I mean, uh, Josie, those of us who've seen Robin Inns perform many times <laughs> know the, the rage and frustration of him saying, I'll get to that in a minute. I'm going I'm to come to that in a minute. In the meantime, I'm just going to talk about this. And he never gets back to the thing later. we wanted him to talk about. Two <laughs> hours later, two hours later, as he finishes his performance um, and you're kind of wilting in your seat, you go, he never did tell us that thing he was going to tell us at the beginning. 
You know, I told you I'm a Band. big Beckett. All very <laughs> carefully planned beforehand. Um, we're pretty much out, out, out of time. I'll, I'll quickly uh, mention again the, the tip jar at the bottom. Where we use that as a, as a resource for a lot of the kind of performers and artists. Uh, and uh, oh, we're, I've just been told by Trent as well. I think we may well have one more uh, question as well. Or we may well have one more thoughts. But yeah, the tip jar at the bottom is... Uh, um, Oh, this is this is from. Uh, it's not a question. It's a point of order uh, oh. from Johnny uh, of the Picture Trails. As uh, he said, uh, he'd just like to message Ian to say that you must only shop in upmarket boutiques. The vinyl is available far cheaper than twenty six pounds online. So it's Lost your. Well, that is. Men mentioning the tip jar and everything which we, we've got as an artist and art centre resource we should uh, i would like to end by saying i think next week band camper again going to do their uh they take no cut so all of the money made i think it i think it's the beginning of may um do check on band camp uh the artist will take all of the all, all of the money on that particular day as they did at the beginning of the lockdown who would you recommend at the moment because of course as, as you said a lot of artists a lot of musicians it didn't yeah. used to be this way but now the way they make the money is not through um album sales in shot it is going out live and yeah. and selling there so who, who should we be looking out for and who should we be buying that we'd be stuff. buying the, the stuff of at the moment um there's all kinds of ways i mean you, if you go to band camp and you can donate you can just give a bit of money for there's lots of um, bands and artists that are doing stuff pie corner audios putting stuff out twilight's harder putting stuff out so many or just support a record label like clay pipe Go along and buy a T-shirt. Go to their, their merch stand and buy a T-shirt. Buy a band T-shirt. Buy an artist T-shirt. Um, go and buy Johnny's overpriced album. Um, there's all <laughs> kinds of things that you can that you can do. Um, and the, the, the last great album, I, uh, if we're not mentioning Johnny, the last great album I did buy just before the lockdown was Isabel Campbell. Uh, her new solo album is phenomenal. And it's a real chiller album. It'll make you smile and it'll make you relax. It'll make you forget about the lockdown. Uh, she used to be in Bell and Sebastian for a while. She's worked with Mark Lanigan. This is a solo project and it's just superb. That is one of the best live gigs I've, I've seen in Edinburgh. Um, I can't remember which venue it was now. It was Isabel Campbell and, and Mark Lanigan, I think, after their first album together. Yeah. It, might, it might be in the second. Absolutely. What an incredible combination the two of them were. That was magnificent. Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. <laughs> Josie, what are you up to for the rest of today? Well, I'm going to fold this pile of laundry. Please, <laughs> please, <laughs> please. Um, uh, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's going to be a very packed day for me, and I just can't wait to see what surprises my daughter has in store. Yesterday, she learned how to open the front gate and walk out onto the road on her own, and for 30 seconds, we didn't know where she was, and it was the most terrifying 30 seconds of my life. Oh, a friend of mine had exactly the same thing at about the same age as well as your daughter. Uh, one day her daughter worked out how to climb out of the window. She unfortunately the downstairs window. That was it. Just climbed out. Do you think that might have been you've really got to stop giving your daughter a full cup of coffee at the beginning of the day? <laughs> <laughs> I've already thrown an entire cup of coffee on myself whilst drinking some of it. How else can I really, can <laughs> I really ramp this up? You know, I can't plateau at 10 a.m. When did you come down, by the way, from the coffee? Because when we left you yesterday, it was just when you went, coffee's kicked in, I've got to go. Johnny said to me, yeah, he was like, she's been very energetic the past hour. Yeah, it's not. I mean, we really are. um, It's a brave new world entering into her turning two. It's a brave new world to have that in lockdown. And thank God I have no time for idleness. (laughs) 
Yeah, uh, beat poetry sounds. Uh, I think it's the it most exciting point when the, the, there's a limit to the language that can be used as well. So that album will be out soon. Uh, Ian, happy birthday for it's the it's the twenty eighth Tuesday. Isn't it? Tuesday, yeah, twenty eighth. I'll get me bus pass. Hi. You won't see me again. Yeah, well, you get and you can watch. No buses going past, and think one day, <laughs> one day this pass will have use. Thanks very much, everyone, for watching. Thanks everyone who's been able to contribute. Of course, you, as you know, uh, it doesn't matter if you can't contribute. We want. We're just going to keep making these shows. Uh, Josie's back tonight with the Quarantine Comedy Club. We've got two science shows over the weekend, uh, including uh, Matthew Cobb and Brian Cox and Helen Chersky on Sunday, and Monday we're back with Mark Gatiss. We've got loads of questions for Mark Gatiss, but if you have any more, send them to the normal address. Stay at home at cosmicshambles.com. Um, Thanks again so much to Ian and Johnny for doing the show today and the show today. Thank you so much. What a cool thing to get to have. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget cosmicshambles.com slash stay at home to catch up on all the previous episodes, find out who's coming up on upcoming episodes and to leave a tip for acts and artists and venues who are hit hardest at the moment. And if you'd like to support us at the Cosmic Shambles Network, patreon.com slash shambles. Oh.